So on behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to the August 2014 podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thank you for joining us today for what's going to definitely be a terrific conversation. Um, I have three guests today. Um, our first guest is Dr. Derry, Dr. Terry Trow, Associate Professor from the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at Yale University School of Medicine. He'll be discussing his committee's publication, Pharmacologic Therapy for Pulmonary Arterial Hypertension in Adults, a CHEST Guideline. Terry, thanks for joining us. Sure, happy to be here. Also joining us today is Dr. Mary George, Senior Medical Officer from the Division for Heart Disease and Stroke Prevention from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta, Georgia. She'll be discussing her group's paper, Pulmonary Hypertension Surveillance, United States, 2001 through 2010. Mary, thanks for joining us. Great. It's good to be here. Thank you. And then also on the line is Dr. Hannah Hennis, Assistant Professor from the Division of Allergy, Pulmonary, and Critical Care Medicine at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. She'll be discussing her accompanying editorial, PAH Treatment Guidelines, New Answers and Even More Questions. Anna, thanks for joining us as well. Thanks for having me. Well, let's, let's dive into it. Um, there's a lot, obviously, in, in this month's chest centering around um, a topic that I think uh, for a lot of our listeners is something that they're, on one level, they feel very familiar with, and on another level, they probably feel, at least I'll speak for myself, wonderfully overwhelmed by. And so um, why don't we set some, some framework and let's take a look at uh, the CDC data. Uh, Mary, could you, could you summarize for us what your group has found? It's a, it's a large data set and in very interesting uh, findings. Yes, we did find some very interesting findings, and, and this work builds off of some previous work that CDC had done looking at um, pulmonary hypertension data between 1980 and 2000. So we extended that to look at the next decade, 2001 through 2010, looking at, at uh, mortality data as well as hospitalization data. Um, and some of the more interesting things that we found was that the longstanding um, trend of decreasing pulmonary hypertension-associated mortality in men, which extended back at least to 1980, continued until 2006. And then since 2006, we've actually seen that reverse and take an upward trend in mortality for men. Um, and we certainly hadn't expected to see that. Um, Meanwhile, the mortality trends for women continue to rise. Um, also looking at trends by age, we saw a significant increase in the older age groups, um, the 75 to 84-year-olds, and also um, very significant increases in those uh, 85 and above. Those trends in the 85 and above-year-old age groups had started um, really back around 1995, um, and they just continue to um, accelerate. We also found some very interesting trends over time in the underlying cause of death associated with pulmonary hypertension, uh, mainly increases in um, mortality for valvular heart disease, coronary heart disease, autoimmune disease, chronic liver disease, diabetes, and renal disease. And in our hospitalization data, uh, we really found the trends um, that we found in the mortality data were mirrored in the hospitalization data. That's interesting. And I'd, I'd like to get hear more from you and, and from the others, um, because obviously we have a new set of treatment guidelines 
because there's been so much, for someone who's not in the field, but looking in from afar, there's, there's been a lot of advancement in this disease state and a lot of advancements from therapeutics. So to, to then look and see what you're describing, you know, from the, the current trends in mortality, I was, it was very puzzling. And, and I'd love to hear from everybody on the phone, um, you know, what their thoughts are as to what's really going on then in this disease state. Is this, are we just looking at the data, has it been coded wrong, or is it actually that we're not doing as good a job as we were all hoping we were doing? Well, Kyle, maybe I can interject there, and I'm interested in Mary's thoughts on this. You know, I wonder if indeed the fact that we're more aware of pulmonary hypertension as a diagnosis may have led to increased reporting on death certificates, recognizing uh, more and more that pulmonary hypertension complicates many uh, diseases in a secondary fashion and may play a role actually in the final demise of the patient. What do you think, Mary? Do you think it's a reporting issue? Um, well, I think it may be, um, as you said, there may be more attention towards making the diagnosis as well as possibly recording that as a secondary condition. Um, I will say that we did see a couple of very interesting findings um, more on the on the positive side to report, and that was the, the very significant decrease in mortality uh, from pulmonary hypertension associated with COPD. Um, as well as significant decreases in the um, congenital and perinatal-associated conditions and mortality in the very young age groups. I suspect, too, Mary, that uh, some of the mortality data that you're seeing in patients 85 and older uh, may be because, of course, they're living long enough to have sequelae from their pulmonary hypertension, and people are now recognizing it more, especially in the setting of what I think is a growing epidemic of diastolic heart failure. Yeah, I would really uh, echo what Terry said. I think when I looked at these data, I thought they were really provocative um, and clearly show that there is an increasing trend towards um, higher mortality, particularly in the elderly. But I wonder a lot about um, exactly what the underlying diagnosis is in these patients. And certainly, um, I think we as physicians use pulmonary hypertension a little bit loosely. Um, and if we're more particular with our nomenclature and talk, you know, about the um, NICE classification scheme from 2013, you might um, be a little bit more granular and able to call patients as, you know, group one or pulmonary arterial hypertension versus the non-group one causes. And I think the um, looseness in our, in our vocabulary may be reflected in the uh, ICD-9 codes and, and death codes that um, were used. And, and that, so that's one thing is that I, I'm not really sure that these deaths are from pulmonary arterial hypertension. There have been recent publications that suggest that um, pulmonary arterial hypertension is pretty rare in patients who are as old as some of the patients who are driving the data here. Um, and then my second thought was that it was particularly interesting was the era that you chose to study, and I think partly it's a follow-up to the last one, but the other thing is that oral therapy was introduced for PAH in 2002, and um, with relatively well-tolerated simple oral therapy, perhaps we're treating it more um, and whether we're treating pH or not is another question, but we're, we're certainly treating it more, and there's more awareness and um, desire to make a diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension than there had been in prior years. So I think there may be sort of differences in how we're reporting it. Well, well and I wonder... Be... Oh, oh, I was just going to say that um, there's, there's clearly a disconnect between the classification scheme and the ICD coding scheme. So, um, we, you know, we clearly recognize that, that it's very hard yeah. to, to, to make sense of the two together. It would be really right. nice if they paralleled each other more. 
that was my does, does anyone think that possible. some of these does anyone think that some of these deaths are potentially going back to I think Anna what you just said that that um, the vocabulary is used relatively loosely as opposed to very specific uh, classifications of, of, of pulmonary hypertension or versus, you know, pulmonary arterial hypertension versus other forms. Mm -hmm. And I wonder then, is there any thought that some of the, the drugs, because oral therapy is so easy and so available and so easy to tolerate in general, et cetera, do we think at all that is there a negative effect when it's being used in the wrong group and because people are more aware of pulmonary hypertension, it is making it on the death certificate. But I, I'll throw out there, does anyone think that indirectly we are actually harming these patients because we're actually treating the wrong patient group? Well, I'll comment on that, Kyle. I mean, certainly uh, there have been reports of attempts to use pH-specific therapies in uh, uh, forms of pH that have not shown benefit, and specifically COPD, for example. There were five studies now that have suggested a negative effect uh, in that, that subgroup of patients. And nothing in the diastolic heart failure subgroup of who uh, group two patients has really shown success, and in, in, in particularly for the relaxed trial just published last year suggested PD-5 inhibitors weren't uh, helpful as many had hoped they would be. And so I think there's a possibility that the drugs could have been uh, compounding or aggravating problems if they were being used in, in, the wrong, uh, in the wrong context. So, for example, maybe increasing the tendency towards uh, pulmonary vascular congestion and congestive heart failure in patients with left-side diastolic heart failure. What do we think also along the way, Mary, during the collection of the data, the ICD-9, and I, there, were some, there were changes in coding. Um, how much do you think that had an effect uh, on this, as well as the additional factors that, that everyone's brought up? Um, I, I think in terms of the overall mortality, which is what we looked at, we looked at uh, multiple cause um, and tried to separate out when pulmonary hypertension was the underlying cause versus when it was a, reported as a multiple cause of death. And because we looked at that entire group um, for the mortality data, I don't think that had a huge impact. If you were to separate out those individual codes, it would look very different. Okay. Um, with, with this in mind, with obviously a lot going on, um, and, I, and, and as we postulate that, you know, some of the reasons we think there's a uh, potential increase in, in the death rate is related to just more awareness. Um, this is obviously on one level a very easy question, but Terry, could you take us through what, what was the impetus to say we need a set of guidelines now for the management or an update of the guidelines for PAH? Uh, I think it's probably obvious, but I'd like to be, <laughs> to be able to set the stage for you as to what, because we all know guidelines represent lots of hours, lots of meetings, lots of time. <laughs> That's certainly true, and we labored quite hard to try to get this right, and I think we've done a good job, but we were struck ourselves by the limitations that we have in terms of good, solid research to base our recommendations on. We tried to be very rigorous in our review of the literature and look very carefully and uh, circumscriptly at what's ha what we have to, to go on. And, of course, the impetus for, for doing this was to help clinicians in the front lines uh, kind of have some semblance of structure for, for how to approach a patient when a diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension is found on echocardiogram and subsequently uh, defined by right heart catheterization. Uh, and we felt that uh, many caregivers on the front lines might be a little overwhelmed. We certainly have had a, a uh, growth of uh, ther available therapies in the last 15 years that's quite unprecedented, and we uh, now have a number of 12 different uh, treatment options uh, available to us. So we, we know that the average person doesn't make this their career or make this their life uh, could easily get a little bit overwhelmed. 
Uh, one of the things the guideline, I think, emphasizes, and I think, Anna, you pointed this out in your editorial, is it's really important to kind of know your comfort zone and, and indeed get patients to uh, centers of expertise in pulmonary hypertension, uh, especially if more complicated therapies are going to be necessary in the form of infused parenteral prostanoid therapy. And certainly, uh, even with oral therapies, to make sure you, that you're uh, up to speed if you're going to be using them on how, how to um, escalate and use combination therapy if patients aren't hitting certain uh, desirable treatment marks. So we, we emphasize that, I hope, in the guidelines, and hopefully people will, will hear that message. And then we decided the best way to approach this is kind of how we all approach it as, as experts in, in the field of pulmonary hypertension, which is to take a look at the, not only the context of the category of pH, but also the uh, functional class of the patient. And we use that as the skeleton to start our discussion, uh, functional class two, three, one, two, three, and 4. And certainly there, there are different treatment decisions that have to be made based on both the, the presenting classification, the functional classification, and also the tempo of the disease progression, which really kind of guide or dictate uh, what you reach for next in your armamentarium. Anna, what do you think? I thought the guidelines were really well written. Um, I thought it was pretty interesting to compare um, these guidelines with ones that uh, were in the past that were less detailed. I thought they were pretty useful for your average clinician. Um, I think essentially that they started with the recommendation that the patient be diagnosed with pulmonary arterial hypertension um, properly and by somebody, as Terry mentioned, who's comfortable with making that diagnosis, which I think is fundamental to following all the rest of the recommendations. Um, I, to me, I thought one of the more interesting things was despite the 8,500 citations that the authors of the guidelines um, reviewed, which really is a tremendous body of work, that there were really very little recommendations that could be made as evidence-based still today, and most of them are consensus-based. But I think that really highlights the challenges of doing good, high-quality clinical research in a really rare disease. Um, and then lastly, I, I thought there were things that um, were new that were with these recommendations that have not been really fully addressed in the past, specifically combination therapy and when and where to use it um, was a new uh, update from prior uh, guidelines. Yeah, so I want to jump into that with, with all three of you about some of the key updates in the guidelines, you know, what are the real big take-home points. But I probably, before you jump into that, just want to stress one very important thing so that, you know, that our listeners are all definitively on the same page, and that is that the the requirement to diagnose PAH, you you can't do it with echo alone. And I think, you know, that seems obvious, um, but um, it seems also striking to me how often that diagnosis is potentially thrown around, and then when you go to try to look for right heart calf data, you can't find it on the patient that's been sent to you. Um, so I just wanted to, if, you've all said it, but I, I guess I wanted to make sure you had the chance to really put the emphasis underlying bold and exclamation point there. Thank you, Kyle. You threw me a softball there. I, I, uh, really think, I think it's essential. The hard ones are coming later. <laughs> yeah, okay. It's, it's really an important concept to, to get out, and I think it's a very easy and innocent mistake uh, for the person who doesn't do this all the time to think that, look, this patient's got elevated pressures on the echocardiogram. Uh, you know, an invasive procedure like a right heart catheterization is a real inconvenience. Maybe my patient will resent me for suggesting it. I'll just start treating with an oral therapy. And the real problem you get into is that, you know, a, a pressure elevation that's detected on an echocardiogram is just that. It's just a, it's a finding like you would find an anemia. You still have to then go find the cause of that pressure elevation because it very much dictates uh, what therapies should follow and what should and shouldn't be given to that patient. And I think that realization is just barely starting to kind of get to the general pulmonary population. But I certainly hope these guidelines help to continue to reinforce that message. 
I really couldn't agree anymore. I mean, it is so fundamental. And, and the reality is, too, that uh, I'm sure Terry can attest to this, even experienced physicians who all they deal with is pulmonary hypertension find ch- cases very challenging. That are, It's not clear if they have pulmonary arterial hypertension uh, or group 3 pulmonary hypertension from their lung disease, uh, whether or not they might have chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension that's a surgically curable disease. It's not always so easy to know exactly what the patient has that's causing the elevation in the RVSP. Um, and a really thorough evaluation and following recommended guidelines for establishing a diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension is so critical. Once, once that true diagnosis of pulmonary arterial hypertension is made, then it's relatively straightforward to follow these really quite useful guidelines that have come out. Um, but applying those guidelines to the other groups of pulmonary hypertension, patients with pulmonary hypertension from IPF, is really not appropriate and also can set up a completely unreasonable set of expectations for how effective therapy is going to be for the patient and the, and the treater. Yeah, agreed, Anna. And, you know, it gets even uh, dicier, if, even if you think you know what you're doing in this field. But we often have patients that will come to us and at least at first blush, a, a snapshot picture of their, their right heart hemodynamics, right cath hemodynamics, would suggest they meet the WHO criteria for a true WHO group 1 pH patient. Uh, then you kind of start looking closer and say they have scleroderma and that left side of their heart doesn't look exactly normal mm-hmm. in echo. Maybe there's some diastolic issues. So then you give them a little fluid because the, before they come in, they've been on their diuretic. And lo and behold, their, their wedge pressure goes from a normal value of 10 to 25 with 500 cc's of saline infusion, rapid infusion. So it gets very tricky, and then, make, then certainly making treatment decisions is very uh, difficult, but you have to have all the data to make the right ones in terms of how to manage a patient like that. Well, and I think, you know, why we wanted to make two points off of this then. I mean, one, I wonder from Mary's perspective, when we go back and, again, we explore you know, the rise in mortality, do we think because a lot of people that are carrying some level of a of a soft diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension or because they never actually went through the true diagnosis of pulmonary arterial hypertension and that maybe the trend that we had originally been seeing, you could possibly actually might still be existing, that we still might be doing a better job, but that our data got corrupted by the soft diagnosis that still gets made pretty frequently. Right. That that can certainly be true. And, you know, we're looking at mortality data. Um, and so we, we, we rely on, more, on those causes of diagnosis on mortality data, um, but oftentimes there could be a variety of different types of persons who are filling out the death certificate. Um, so there's right. certainly um, a lot of different points along the way where, where things could be a little different than what we see when we look at the mortality data. And this is where it's really helpful to have the clinicians comment on this. So before we uh, came online and, and began the podcast, we had all been talking a little bit. And, and Mary, you had a, a really good question that you wanted to pose to our colleagues here. Um, would you mind asking them? Sure. One of the things that we saw in our data was that approximately half the patients um, we're over the age of 75, and I was curious to know whether that's reflected in your clinical practice. Well, Mary, I, I think can, that's... I can address that uh, first, Mary, uh, and then we'll see what Anna has, has to say. But I, you know, I think that in general, the age of our patients with true group 1 uh, pH has uh, gotten older in, in, in the current epidemiology study would support that it's a little older than it was back in the 1980s when the NIH registry looked at this, uh, this data. 
I'm not sure why that is, but certainly uh, we don't usually see patients with true true idiopathic pH or who group 1 pH that often in the elder, older age group. And I suspect that that data is reflecting uh, more contributions from who group 2 status, uh, venous hypertension from diastolic dysfunction, or other co-morbidities uh, uh, that are uh, causing pH, uh, sorry, causing true idiopathic pH. Yeah, I completely agree with Terry. Um, I think it's a really interesting question, and I think that was probably the most uh, important and telling finding from your uh, manuscript was that the patients that are diagnosed with pulmonary hypertension and that are seen by practitioners and that are unfortunately are dying also are now aging, um, and it's really critical to make the correct diagnosis. We and others have published that pulmonary arterial hypertension, who group 1 pulmonary hypertension, is rare in patients who are over the age of 65, and like Terry said, more commonly it's made up of group 2, group 3, occasionally group 4, um, and especially idiopathic pulmonary arterial hypertension is very, very rare in this older population. So I think it really hammers uh, home the importance of making the correct diagnosis in that population. And that would also probably explain why we saw some increases in the um, comorbidities as well. Right. Yeah, I agree. Terrific. So, um, Terry, you know, your, the, the guidelines, there's a, there's a lot in there, and it's a very large body of work, and, and, and again, congratulations to you and the whole committee. Um, there's, I'd like, was wondering if you could, to, for our listeners, take us through what were the really key points, or, or maybe also equally important, what represents major changes? What are some of the, the big shifts in, in that you know, you'd say are in these guidelines that might represent a, a change in how someone would practice you know, starting tomorrow? Sure. Uh, well, first of all, I'd like to point out what's not different in these guidelines, which I, I hope has been a consistent message we've given to practitioners through the series of guidelines offered to the ACCP, which is that, you know, as, as Anna just pointed out, it's terribly important not to diagnose pH, but rather to diagnose the cause of pH. Uh, that is to say, properly classify the, the cause of etiology of the pulmonary hypertension that's being seen on an echocardiogram. And, of course, this requires a right heart catheterization. I think it's very important to, again, point out to our listeners that it's, it's crucial uh, to do a proper right heart catheterization to define which who group these patients belong to because the, therapies, uh, the therapeutic strategy will, will, will change dramatically. And it's also important the guidelines uh, emphasize that we don't use pH-specific therapies in who group 2 and 3 patients, which is a, a common tendency and, and a temptation, but one that has not been borne out by uh, evidence-based uh, literature that to be a good idea. So that's important for those things. It's not different about the guidelines. Now, in terms of things that may be different in these guidelines, I think uh, this uh, uh, body of work was really attempted to help practitioners kind of stratify what they would do based on the functional class of the patient. And we all know that we, we tend to look at the WHO functional class, one, two, three, or four, and define what therapies might be appropriate based on their functional status. And also the tempo of the disease, very important that a patient who's, for example, a WHO group three patient who's had a very rapid progression of symptoms, uh, high BNP levels, maybe pericardial fusion beginning, those things would really dictate uh, a patient we want to be more aggressive in, and I think the therapy, the guidelines help emphasize that. Certainly, functional class four patients, the emphasis and the clear message from the guidelines is that they should be on uh, infused parenteral prostanoid therapy, period. I mean, anybody who's functional class four, if you don't do that, their likelihood of dying in six months is quite high. So really need to be aggressive in that subgroup of patients, even though these, uh, those particular therapies are somewhat cumbersome. In terms of who group three patients, uh, those with rapidly progressing symptoms also, I think, warrant uh, prostanoid therapy. 
those with less uh, less uh, severe ra rapidly progressing um, symptoms and uh, findings such as BMP, percutaneous fusion, etc., they may uh, they may be okay with an oral therapy, uh, but with a low threshold for combination therapy, something this, these guidelines do uh, make a great, great deal of mention of. Not because we have so much data on, on combination therapy, though that is increasing slowly, uh, but because we know from practice and our own practical experience that these patients often warrant that to avoid a deterioration. And certainly, who, uh, who group two patients, functional class two patients, um, uh, I'm sorry, functional class two patients, really uh, may have any, any combination of oral therapies. There's no uh, particular one that's the right one to start with. It depends on the particular patient, and so, but certainly oral therapy is appropriate in functional class two patients. And of course, functional class one patients, the guidelines recommend close observation, but not initiating pH-specific therapy. In regards to combination therapy, uh, uh, Dr. Elliott and others did a nice job summarizing what we do know about that. And I think one of the most important trials that's going to be coming out soon that uh, isn't in the guidelines, but which will be in the next set of guidelines, is the ambition trial, looking at whether upfront combination therapy is better than sequential uh, addition of combination therapy. And finally, um, the guidelines uh, certainly take on the new therapies that have been approved just this year, uh, three therapies, the oral trypostinol, masitentin, and riosigwat, and so try to place uh, those in some perspective in terms of where they might be used for our pH patients um, and, and give the, ca the caregivers out there some kind of structured guidelines on how to use these new therapies. Fantastic. I mean, so obviously, I mean, and clearly for all our readers, I mean, I strongly advise obviously to read the entire set of guidelines. It's, it, there's a lot of key points, and, and to your credit, you know, there's 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 good reference, and there's also good discussion of where it's both from, you know, what's from excellent trials and what's from more, you know, consensus opinion and expert opinion due to there being a lack of a trial or a lack of good study to, to support a to support a recommendation. But that being said, you've got a room full of experts. Sometimes there's there is still a value to that. Well, I think that's really important. I think Anna made mention of this in her, in her editorial, that we really, it, it's, it's kind of uh, disappointing how little evidence base we have in this field, uh, that there are nine or ten studies we could really uh, rest on in terms of strong evidence-based guidelines. And the rest is consensus. And the guidelines do emphasize that we want uh, our readers, our academic uh, clinicians who are out there reading these guidelines to look at the, the areas that need addressing in terms of uh, robust clinical trials and try to answer some of those questions before the next set of guidelines come out. Terrific. Well, we've been talking for a while. Let me, uh, I usually always try to wrap things up by making sure that, uh, you know, that everybody got the points across that they were hoping to get across or that there wasn't some key thing. You're like, gosh, I hope that guy would ask me this question, and he never did. <laughs> so uh, for the three of you, is there anything kind of final thoughts, final statements, or something we should be talking about? Well, Why don't you go first, Terry? I'm going to work my way down the order here. <laughs> no worries. I just want to emphasize to the, to the listeners that, it, again, this it, it, may be a, a, a bit redundant, but it's very important that they understand that a right heart catheterization is crucial in the proper evaluation of patients with, uh, presenting with elevated pressures on an echocardiogram, and that they shouldn't be hesitant to do that, and that that will guide uh, a, a proper therapy. And the notion of using empiric therapy in patients with echo finding is really a no-no. That really should not be done, and that we really need to resist the temptation to use pH-specific therapies in patients with uh, pulmonary venous hypertension or, or, or pulmonary disease-related, hypoxia-related uh, pulmonary hypertension. Mary and Anna, whoever wants to go next. <laughs> this I is Mary, and I don't have anything to add. This is Anna. I think the um, important features of these articles and the reason that they're nice together is that they 
talk, the guidelines talk about pulmonary arterial hypertension and how to manage it and how we know best to manage it in 2014. And, and Mary's article really points to where we need to be going in the future, which is how to deal with all non-group 1 pulmonary hypertension based on the sort of age of her population in the, in the patients that they identified. So I think it's critical to realize, as uh, Terry said, that the, probably these guidelines don't apply as well to the population that is in uh, Mary's manuscript, but really points to where the guidelines or where we need to develop new guidelines in the future for patients who are older who don't have pure pulmonary arterial hypertension um, as diagnosed appropriately by the manner that Terry talked about. Terrific. Well, I, I can't thank the three of you enough for your time. I really, I really appreciate it, and as always, a, a terrific discussion, and, and I encourage our listeners to, uh, to go read all three articles. And um, thank you very much. Thank you, Thank Kyle. you. Thank terrific. you. Terrific. You guys all have a great day. Thanks.